right. Well, let's uh, continue on together. Do grab your seats if you haven't already, and we're going to continue our morning. Welcome to you. My name's Philip. I lead the church here. Great to see you all, and particularly if you are new, can I add my welcome to you? I hope you're having a great morning with us. And if you are new, you need to know that we just started a new uh, series of talks called Life As It Should Be. And we're looking at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, as are our kids, actually, Sparkers and Flames. Uh, our three to 11-year-olds are doing, doing the same series as well, uh, so much so they're off to see Joseph the Musical, I gather, very soon. Um, and if you are a little bit new to the series or if you're new to the Bible, um, let me just catch you up on what's been happening. We've only had one talk so far, so it shouldn't be too difficult. But last week we saw in Genesis 37 that Joseph is part of one messy family. It is a seriously messy family that he's in. The events in question in which his messy family live are about 1600 BC. He's in Canaan and Egypt in the Middle East at the time. And we saw last week that when it comes to a messy family, you've got a major, major issue because Joseph's father's favoritism, uh, his own arrogance, frankly, and his brother's anger have meant that Joseph has found himself essentially trafficked into kind of human slavery in Egypt. And we said last week that God loves messy families. And although Joseph finds himself in a pretty uh, dire straits here, we're going to see that God's love and attention to Joseph doesn't waver one little bit at all. Genesis 39 is the passage we're going to be in. The screen will be up behind me. Uh, the words will be up behind me on the screen as well. It's quite a long passage, but I'm going to read the first 20 verses or so of Genesis 39. So, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Be nice, wouldn't it? So I have no concern of anything else other than what's on the dinner table. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you. Because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he, 
meaning Potiphar. He's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He, the Hebrew, came in to lie with me, and, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I, he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the, prisoners, where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Hmm. Lots going on in this passage. Hey, I think one of the key things that's going on in this passage, or one of the things that I particularly notice, is that you've got three people, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, and uh, Joseph, all with a significant degree of influence. They've all got quite a lot of power if you look at it in different ways. So Potiphar is described as being the captain of the guard, which initially I thought meant like he's in charge of a few soldiers in his household. But actually the Hebrew for captain of the guard is used to describe a Babylonian general who wipes out Jerusalem in two kings. So what Potiphar really is, is more akin to like the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He's one of the most influential, powerful men in one of, if not the most, influential, powerful nation on the face of the earth. And Joseph, we're told, has become overseer of all that Potiphar owns. His household, his estate, his land, his business. Joseph runs the whole lot. So Joseph is not like an assistant. He's like a CEO of a major business or a major company or estate. He too has become a very influential man. And then Potiphar's wife, of course. She has a significant degree of influence. She's the lady of the house. She's married to one of the most powerful men in Egypt. She can really do as she pleases, such is the influence that she has. So you've got three people with very considerable degrees of influence. And I want to suggest this morning that you and I are also men and women of significant influence, considerable influence in different ways. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, Joseph, all have degrees of influence. I think all of us have degrees of influence. Now, for some of you, that's a pretty straightforward concept. Be like, yeah, I, I look after a big team in the workplace, or the decisions that I make have a considerable effect on the business that I'm in. I, I affect the direction of our company, or the hospital, or the school that I'm in, or even the church. For others of you, I'm thinking, yeah. Not really sure if I have that much influence, to be honest. I'm, maybe I'm a stay-at-home parent. Perhaps I'm a student. Maybe I'm retired. Maybe I'm in the workplace, but I don't feel like I'm kind of anywhere near the influential stage. But I want to suggest that all of us are influencing people all of the time. We all have degrees of influence. I just one example. Think about the number of conversations that you have during the week with your kids with other parents, with strangers, with family members, with friends, with colleagues. Set hundreds, probably, of conversations. Every conversation does influence to a degree. All of us have degrees of influence. And if you look at Joseph, you can kind of see the whole spectrum playing out just in those first six verses. Because remember, he arrives in Egypt as a 17-year-old foreign slave boy. 
So he'd have been given, I'm sure, the most menial of tasks to do initially. He'd have been cleaning the toilets, wouldn't he? 17-year-old, foreign slave boy, just chucked into the households. But remember, he would, clearly, he, I'll start again. It doesn't seem to me like he had no influence. He must have had some. Because clearly the things that he does right in his early days of cleaning the toilets seem to bear an effect. He gets himself noticed. People notice the quality with which he goes about his work. He starts to make decisions that have an impact upon the broader household. He gets given more and more influence. And by the time he's like 25, 26, he's pretty much all but the boss in name. But he goes through stages of influence, and all of us do as well. But the question is not so much how much influence do you have. The question is what will you do with the influence that you do have? How will you use the influence that you have? That's what I look at this morning. And to look at that, or to answer that question, we've got to look at three things. The opportunities of influence, the pitfalls of influence, and the foundations of influence. Opportunities, pitfalls, and foundations. Number one, opportunities. Let me tell you a a story that I love to tell occasionally. It's the story of, of the Quakers. You might have heard of that movement of Christian people that kind of sprung up in the 19th century, in the Victorian era. And the Quakers are fascinating because they had very little influence. They, they, were, they were 0.1% of the population. They were excluded from attending universities for various reasons, which meant they were in effect excluded from the main professions of medicine and law and politics and so on. But nonetheless, despite having minimal influence... In fact, having their influence deliberately marginalized, they said, we still want to care for our nation. We still want to bring good to the people around us. And so they started to become businessmen and businesswomen, entrepreneurs, basically. They made a decision to become entrepreneurs, and they started some of the most famous businesses that we still know today. So those of you with a sweet tooth, well, I'm sure will love Cadbury's, be very dear to your heart, some of you. And that is a Quaker-started business. And they started it partly to start a good, successful, money-making business. But they also knew that chocolate was a brilliant alternative to alcohol, which was causing terrible problems uh, in the Victorian era. Some of you are like, oh yeah, weighing it up, either one. (laughs) And they also knew that chocolate at the time contained a really poisonous red lead, which is really bad for you. So they made healthy chocolate, at least in comparison. They also started giving uh, one of the first organizations to give pensions to their employees. They created um, quite good quality housing for their employees. And the list goes on. It wasn't just Cabris. Roundtree, again, very similar. Quaker backgrounds in the Victorian era, determined to start a good business and to do good whilst they did it. The list goes on. Terry's chocolatiers, fries, peppermint creams. Am I wetting your appetite here? Barclays and Lloyds Bank, also stemming from the same roots. Clark Shoes, Cars, Water Biscuits, all started by these people who had minimal influence in the 19th century. All wanted to, uh, to do good as they created good businesses. And I really think that the Quakers, I can see some of you actually, like your mouths are watering as you see. I think there's a blank slide next to help us concentrate. Is that, yeah. I think the Quakers really got hold, though, 
of something of the broader narrative of the Bible. They knew their Bible pretty well. And they got hold of something that I think you see right through the whole story of the Bible. Which is that God intends for his people to use their influence to cultivate good within those spheres of influence. And I think you see that through the whole story of the Bible, even right back at the beginning. And if you're new to the Bible, it really is one big story of the goodness and the grace of God intervening into humanity to draw them to himself. And right at the beginning of the story of the Bible, you see Adam and Eve. And God deliberately gives Adam and Eve, he says, here's your area of influence, the creation around you. And he tasks them, doesn't he, with cultivating good, stewarding it, looking after it, causing it to flourish and grow. So right at the beginning of humanity, before anything has got into us to corrupt and fracture perfect humanity, God puts in our, if you like, our spiritual DNA an ability and a desire to cultivate things, to, to cause things to be beautiful, to do good in the influence around us, to be fruitful through our efforts and our endeavors. God puts that in there specifically. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I kind of talked through something of the direction that we're taking as a church into 2016 and 2017 and beyond. We looked at vision and vehicles and values. And if you remember, we talked about what it is to be followers of Jesus. And particularly, followers of Jesus who are salt and light within their spheres of influence. And if you're thinking, well, that's a, just made that phrase up, that's the phrase that Jesus used himself. The metaphor that he chose to describe what his followers would be like. And I think he chose that metaphor because he wanted us to understand that to be a follower of him is to be like a light. Not one that's hidden, one that shines, like an illuminating signpost. One that points people towards also becoming a follower of him. It illuminates the path forward to the truth of Christ, the claims of Christ, and the joy of following Christ. That's what he meant. And by salt, he meant he wants us to be a preservative. So the things that are good about creation. He wants us to help preserve those. That's what salt did in those days. And he also wants us to add flavor to the spheres of influence in which we're in. And Joseph seems to have been pretty salty in his workplace. Remember, he started real small, 17-year-old slave boy. Didn't even want to be there. Remember that? Who doesn't really want to be in their workplace? Joseph did not want to be in his workplace. Started real small, cleaning toilets, could not have been more marginalized. And yet clearly he must have been faithful in what he was asked to do. He must have been as good and as excellent as he possibly could be in what he was asked to do. God gives him favor. He's noticed. He's then given additional responsibility. He's able to make more and more wise and sound decisions that prove increasingly profitable and fruitful for his boss and his company. It's Joseph's story. And he ended up basically being promoted to be the boss in all but name. He says it himself in verse 9. He, Potiphar, is not greater in this house than I am. Pretty blunt statement of the degree to which his influence has increased, having started off cleaning the toilets. That's speculation, but you see the point I'm trying to make. And, and notice this, King's Church. This development of Joseph is not something that God is just observing neutrally, like arms folded, a bit ambivalent about, with a shrug of his shoulder. God is causing this to happen. Look at some of the verses at the beginning of the passage. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. 
Verse 3, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And if we know the story of the Bible as it continues from Adam and Eve, this shouldn't really be a surprise to us. Because you get to Abraham in the story, and what does God promise Abraham? I'm going to make your descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. And then notice, who is the first fulfillment of that promise? Who does God choose as the first fulfillment of this beginning of a nation being a blessing to more nations? Church leader, preacher, prophet? No, businessman, Joseph, future government leader. He's the first fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that I'm going to use your descendants to be a blessing to more nations than just yours. So Joseph ends up accruing more and more influence and so God's using him to bless his employer, to bless his company, and to bless this new nation. Notice, it's an employer who doesn't believe in his God, the God of the Bible. Within a company who don't believe in his God, the God of the Bible. Within a nation who don't believe in his God, the God of the Bible. And yet God is working specifically through him to bring blessings to them. In the small, in the micro, and also in the macro, in the national soon. It's part of God's plan and purpose for his people. All because Joseph started small. In a place he didn't even want to be. Torn away from his homeland. 17 years old. Chucked into humans by his own brothers. But he clearly had a philosophy, I would argue, of using his influence to honor God. Because Potiphar's noticed this, this God's with you. Potiphar notices that. And to bring a blessing to others around him. I heard a story recently of just somebody in our church that really uh, encouraged me. Some of you will know uh, Kate Goddard. Kate and Mark and their family have been part of the church for a number of years. And uh, Kate's story has just encouraged me these last few weeks. I think it ties in quite nicely because Kate was recently, um, having had three kids, was considering going back kind of into the into the paid workplace, um, and she wanted a, a part-time role accordingly. And she came across a part-time role with a charity called End Child Poverty. Some of you will know this, and she, she got the job. And it strikes me that what Kate is doing is not dissimilar to what we're talking about, because her role is to generate a sphere of influence with her charity and the other children's charities, to, to get a, a sense of agreement and collaboration in order... Why? That they might use their influence as a group of charities to hold the government to account to end child poverty as they promised to do by 2020. So what Kate is doing is cultivating influence in her own charity, in other charities, in all of that influence can be used to be salt and light within the environment that she's in. The government has promised to end child poverty by 2020. Now all the measurements of that are up for debate. But that's what Kate's trying to do. And none of the charities are Christian. In fact, some of them would hold very different worldviews to what uh, we see in the Bible and to what mainstream Christianity would hold to. But I think Kate is being, as many of you are, is being salt and light in her environment, seeking to preserve what is good, charitable work to assist vulnerable children, and seeking to add flavor to it, seeking to increase its influence. And in terms of being a light, they might not know what she's doing, but I believe Kate is bringing something of the goodness and the compassion and the grace of God into that situation. 
Again, you read the story of the Bible, you see God's heart for children, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the vulnerable. You see that written throughout the story of the Bible. That's just one story. I know many of you are doing similar things. Now, mums, hear me. What I'm not saying is to, have a, to be salt and light in a sphere of influence, you have to go into the paid workplace. It's not what I'm saying. And if you ask Kate that, you, you won't have that misunderstanding uh, for very long because the priority of her husband and her children and the influence she knows she has with her own children and her children's friends and parents and so on. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is it's good to be encouraged by influence within our community being used to be salt and light within a much broader community, whether it's at national level or whether it's at neighbourhood level. So what about us? How are we doing two weeks on? (laughs) How are we doing in terms of being salt and light within our sphere of influence? If we're a Christian here this morning, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with developing perhaps new spheres of influence, particularly within the borough? I've been really encouraged to hear just murmurings and noises of like new things starting. People talking about choirs and walking groups and so on. I was really encouraged to hear people saying, I kind of didn't realize that the thing I enjoy doing counts. <laughs> that really encourages me. It really counts. Remember my questions? What do you enjoy doing? How has God made you? And how can you be uh, cultivating disciples of Christ within that sphere of influence? So encouraged to hear people saying, the thing that I enjoy doing... I see that it now counts. It's part of the disciple-making process. It might be salty, preserving just what is good, adding flavor to it. It might be more like light, where you actually illuminate someone's path towards the joy of following Christ. How are we doing with that? I had an encouraging story just for me personally during our week of prayer and fasting that we had recently, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Some of you will know I live on an estate in Kingston, and uh, I don't feel like I have much influence, to be honest with you. I came from being a teacher where I was very confident in the influence I had to a place where I had no influence, less than no influence sometimes. And you're, you're starting conversations and you're having a go, exploring things and you're praying and two and a half years, little bits and pieces, nothing much really. And just in that week, like many of you were, I know, I was just praying, God, would you give me opportunities to add something of flavor and add something of the, the light of the gospel to my community, not least the lads that hang around kind of my tower block, who I just occasionally have a bit of banter with, and it's nothing more than that, and that's about it, really. Well, what, during that week, I came out of my tower block, and these bunch of lads were hanging around um, with cars that may or may not have been theirs. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them just said to me straight away, um, will you be our football coach? I said, what? Will you be our football coach? Yeah, yeah, so uh, we've got a football team and, and uh, we, just, like, we just need someone who can help us. And we're, uh, You're a football coach, aren't you? I was like, how much can I stretch the truth on this? <laughs> I like football. Uh, I was like, well, not really. I think you know, guys, you know, I'm pastor of a church. But yeah, yeah, but you told us a couple of years ago that you, that you used to coach football. I was like, yeah, I, I did say that a couple of years ago. You're right, and I did coach football about eight years ago. He said, well, yeah, so you can do it then, can't you? You can stand on the touchline, you can like, encourage us, tell us what to do. <laughs> now, no, I did not say, well, when you stop smoking weed, nicking cars and swearing, then I think about it. I said, yeah, I think about it. Here's my number. Now, nothing's come of that yet at all. But it's just started to help me see that I do have some influence, the influence I hadn't really recognize that was the case. And when you start praying, God, whatever influence I have, however small it might be, can you use me to be salt and light in that influence? I'm telling you, watch out, he'll start answering those prayers. 
Number two, the pitfalls of influence. <laughs> Number one was the opportunity, the opportunity to be salt and light. Number two, the pitfalls of influence. The observant amongst you, the theologically attuned amongst you, will have noticed that in my little story of the Bible from, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Joseph, I missed out one fairly key moment in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Missed out that fairly key moment, didn't I? When Adam and Eve choose to disobey God and to eat the fruits. What was going on there when they made that decision? That God had said, everything is yours to cultivate and steward, but not that. And they chose to still take that. What was happening in that moment? Well, I want to suggest to you that it was about influence and power. I think they'd gone from in a position of using the power and influence that had been given to them for God, in harmony with God, to a different heart change where they were seeking to literally grab power, grab influence, accrue what they could for themselves because they believed the devil's lie, that what God's given you is not enough, so you've got to grab more. That's what's happening. It's the nature of sin in some ways. So to put it a different way, if you're not sure what sin is, it's a bit of a religious word. One way of defining it is Adam and Eve are seeking not to use power for God, but to try and grab power to be as powerful as God. And can you see that through the course of history ever since? Humanity wrestling with how do we use power? Do we use it for good, for others, to flavor things? Or do we seize as much as we can with it for ourselves? See that in turn, turn the news on. You see humanity wrestling with how to use influence and power. I think Abraham Lincoln, better than most, knew the challenge of having influence and power. This is what he said Nearly all men, meaning nearly all people, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Lincoln means even more challenging than going through tough times is using influence well. That's what he's saying. And he went through some tough times. If you ever want to be encouraged about how you can fail loads of times but still succeed, read Abraham Lincoln's biography. He failed so, so many times, like laughably so almost. So he knew what it was to go through challenging times. And he said, despite all of that, the bigger challenge of my heart and my character is knowing how to use influence. I think that's really helpful. It's really easy to be corrupted by influence, however much we had. And Joseph was vulnerable to that. He definitely was vulnerable to that. And I know the sex thing is the, the, overt, the overt pitfall, if you like, in the passage. But I think there are some others. We'll come to that in a second. The first, if you like, area, the first pitfall that Joseph could have fallen into, which is not unique to influence, but it's certainly linked to having it and having more of it, is selfishness. Isn't it? Surely Joseph must have been tempted to see what he could accrue for himself through his influence. I would have been. He says himself, my master has put everything that he has in my charge. He must have been tempted, or at least considered. I could use all my considerable influence for my own gain. I could use it to meet my needs. He's a human being like us, far from home, full of needs, felt needs. But it doesn't appear that he did that. Whereas it does seem that Potiphar's wife, remember her, it does seem that she did feel fall victim to this. She felt she could use her influence to get what she felt she needed. Which might have just been sex, or it might have been some deeper emotional need that she had, probably was. And when she didn't get that, of course, 
What does she then want? Revenge. So she uses her influence to get that by manipulating Potiphar. Second one is sex. That's the overt kind of temptation, if you like, in the passage. Bluntly speaking, Joseph is faced with the opportunity to sleep with his boss's wife. Now, I think you've got to work quite hard for us to kind of genuinely stand in Joseph's shoes to an extent. I don't imagine that many of you guys have ever had your boss's wife trying to rip your clothes off. It's not like an everyday temptation. But I still imagine we can still relate to what Joseph is going through when it comes to the sexual pitfall that is put before him. Again, it's not unique to influence, of course not, but it is partly attached to it. So he is young and single. I think he's about 25, 26 at the time. He doesn't seem to have paused for too much thought when Potiphar's wife is pursuing him, but he's a young single guy. Enough said. And about this, I wonder whether he ever, in his quiet moments, age 25, far from home, whether he ever thought, I'm probably never going to get married. I'm probably never going to have sex. I wonder whether he thought that. Unlikely as he probably was, as a foreigner, as a slave. He might have thought, this is probably my only chance. I'm speculating, but I don't think it's unreasonable to do so. I could just, this is probably as good as it gets. Why don't I just grab this? Fed up waiting. And thirdly, I guess it would have crossed his mind that given his influence, he could probably get away with it. Everything in the household is his. Everyone looks to him as the de facto boss. He could probably get away with it if he needed to. If all that's stopping us falling into the pitfalls of influence or anything else is, I might get found out, that is not going to sustain you. If all that's, stopping, if all that's helping us to behave well is nothing to do with the gospel and just a fear of being busted, it's not going to help us. It's not going to be the answer. But thirdly, I think there was a bigger pitfall that Joseph faced, perhaps the biggest one of all. You see, one of the pitfalls of influence or power is that it can be taken away in a moment, can't it? see that all the time. Business, politics, sports, massive influence can just go like that. And Joseph experiences that. He's falsely accused of attempted rape. His reputation is trashed, and in no time he goes from being the boss in all but name of a large business to being flung in prison. Everything gone. And he did everything right. He's doing all the right things. But last week, you could argue he's a bit culpable for what happened. Naive, arrogant, bit of a toe rag. This week, he's doing everything right. Everything right. He's faithful in the small things, in the toilet cleaning. He's been as excellent as he possibly can be in what he's been given to do. He's taken the opportunity to use influence to bless others. He doesn't give in to the temptations of selfishness or greed or, or misusing sex. And everything blows up for him anyway. You ever experienced that? God, I'm kind of doing all the right things here. It's just got a lot worse. Joseph experienced that in spades. He couldn't, he's a faultless. He is faultless in chapter 39. And we can't say, well, the Bible makes him like that because he's not faultless in chapter 37. He's faultless in chapter 39 and his life completely blows up. So I think the biggest pitfall for him was despair. Total despair. 
thrown into the pit back in, back in Canaan, brought into slavery, and made to t- clean the toilets, but bit by bit his influence is growing. Wow, God, you're so good to me. Blessings are coming. I've got more influence. People seem to be responding to me. I feel like I'm doing some good in a, in, in a way. And there's <laughs> some tough temptations. And God, you're helping me. Pff, everything gets 10 times worse in prison. And yet he doesn't seem to give in to despair. Doesn't. I'll tell you why. Because at the beginning of the next chapter, he's in prison and he just kind of carries on where he left off. He assesses the influence that he has in the prison and then starts to use that influence to bring good to the people in the prison. He doesn't give in to despair. So my question is, how does Joseph navigate the opportunities and the pitfalls of influence so well? What are his foundations, number three? How does he manage to be salt and light with his influence? And how does he manage to avoid the pitfalls and the temptations with it? I think the big clue is in verse 9. When Joseph tells Potiphar's wife pretty bluntly that he's not going to be sleeping with her, he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When I read that, I said, well, surely it'd be a sin against Potiphar. She's his, husband, she's his wife. Yeah. But Joseph's ultimate argument is, this would be a sin against God. Joseph knows who he is. He knows that he is God's. He knows that he belongs to God. And he knows he didn't earn that. He knows that God has decided, as the passage says over and over again, to be with him. And so as such, for him to misuse his influence for Joseph wouldn't simply be a moral wrong that he really ought not to do. Or something that he'd regret if he did it. Or something that he might get busted for and reputation be trashed. That's not the reason why he doesn't go there. The reason is he knows who he is. I'm a child of a holy, loving God. How is it possible that Joseph doesn't give in to the temptation to be selfish and controlling and prideful as he goes from rags to riches at the beginning of the passage? How is it possible that he doesn't give in to temptation and use influence for himself or to meet his needs or to control people or to misuse sex? And why doesn't he just throw in the towel when all the influence disappears, riches to rags, his reputation is trashed and he's flung in jail? Because he knows who he is. So when I, was a, when I was a teacher in my early days, I really wanted to be uh, ahead of year. I wanted to kind of have influence, if you like, over a year group rather than just a class group and lay my iron rule down for the benefit of all before me. And uh, I applied for the job in my first couple of years, got interviewed with the headmaster, didn't get the job. Somebody else got it. Now, I still had that desire to generate that sphere of influence but I wouldn't have been much sense. If I'd have gone around trying to be ahead of year then, really wouldn't have worked. It wasn't who I was. It wasn't that part of my identity. I could have done ahead of year type things, but it would not have borne fruit. Second time the job vacancy came up, I did apply for it, and I did get it. And I had a letter from the headmaster saying, you are now a head of year. Go forth and rule. <laughs> so I could be ahead of year because it was who I was. And I knew who I was. And I had authority to be who I was. I'd been commissioned to get on and do that. I could go and generate influence and hopefully do bring some good within it because I knew who I was. Joseph knows who he is. I'm a child of God, Joseph is saying. 
Who I am is not defined by how much influence I have or where I live or how others view me or what my needs are. Who I am is defined by who God says I am and what God says is for my good and for his glory. So I'm not going to be taken up by influence like Potiphar's wife has been. But I will take up influence and use it and deploy it and be salt and light. And when, Joseph's saying, when temptation comes, I'm not just going to grit my teeth and try and withstand it, although he takes very drastic practical action. He's like, I'm not just going to try and really try hard not do this thing. I'm going to look towards God. See the difference? So many times, I think, if you're a Christian, we try and, and, and not do the wrong stuff by just trying really hard or by convincing ourselves of the reasons why perhaps we shouldn't. Joseph looks to God. I can't do this thing because I'm his and he's mine. I live for him and, and in some respects, he lives for me. It's identity. If you take nothing else away from this morning, take this. It's your identity that allows you to navigate the successes and the pitfalls of influence. And that is one of the fundamental accomplishments of the gospel. It's one of the fundamental achievements of what Jason prayed about before. Jesus' perfect death, perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. The gospel is the news of things that have been accomplished, have been achieved. Remember I said last week, because the gospel has happened, it's been achieved and accomplished, we can always apply it to our situations. It's never about just trying really hard. What has the gospel done for me that means that I can navigate this? And this is another example. The gospel has made me a new person. If you're not a Christian here this morning, here's the deal. Faith in Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, means that you get to be fully identified with all that he accomplished. It's like you just sit into his slipstream, robed in the same robe that he has. And so when he was raised to life, big claim, everything rests upon that. If he did, he, he achieved all that he meant to. And you get joined to newness of life, new identity. And again, the story of the Bible is littered with that. You get a new heart, a new mind to be renewed. You're like a new creation. Identity, identity, identity. And the gospel has done that for you. Do we see? And so then you can begin to step into what else the gospel intends for you to go on and do. Which is to be fruitful. Which is to enter into spheres of influence, no matter how small or big, and be salt and light amongst them, just as Jesus intended, that others might be drawn to the truth of Christ and the joy of following him. When you know who you are. Because 1,600 years after this Joseph lived, another Joseph came on the scene. And he too was rejected by his own. Wasn't he? He too came to use his power and his influence not to be served, but to serve and to be treated like a slave. The second Joseph also resisted temptation all the way. The first Joseph was flung into prison. The second Joseph was flung to his death. The first Joseph was raised from his prison. The second Joseph was raised from death to life. And it's faith in that perfect life, that sacrificial death and that victorious resurrection That means we get a brand new identity with him. And let me finish on this. We looked at this last term. 
This is what Paul, who's writing a letter to the Romans in the New Testament, Paul's writing to new Christians, and he tells them, he helps them to understand how this whole thing fits together of identity and use of influence to be fruitful and cultivating and to be salt and light. I think we looked at it, we did look at it last term. In Romans 7 4, Paul explains all of this rather more concisely than I have done. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So because you identified with him, you died with sin, as it were, with him. So that you may belong to another, Christ, who has been raised from the dead. Why? That we may bear fruit for God. That we may go forth and cultivate and be fruitful and be salt and light within our own spheres and levels and degrees of influence. The gospel has accomplished what you and I need. A brand new heart, a brand new way of thinking, a new identity partly in order that we might go forward and be fruitful, just like it was supposed to be right at the beginning. Jesus has purchased what it was intended to be like, just like Adam and Eve were at the beginning. Men and women in harmony with God, for the glory of God, powered by his Holy Spirit, cultivating, being fruitful, doing what they are made to do and they enjoy doing, being salt and light and pointing others towards the joy of following Christ. If you just look at the first Joseph, all we've got is a hero to imitate. It's helpful, it's inspiring. It's the second Joseph who is not just a hero to imitate. He is one who has done all that we need to do to be joined with him, to tuck in with him, to be empowered by him, and to get on with what he commissioned us to do, which is to cultivate and make brand new disciples of him. That is our role. That is our task. That is our commission. That's what we are built to do. Darren and the band, can you come and join me? Uh, We've got time to respond. Uh, I think it's always helpful when God's been speaking, I believe he has, because it comes from his Bible, is to respond to what he's been saying. Anything that's just a me, you can discard that. But the stuff that's come from God, we've got to respond to. And I believe that God is, is teaching us as a church what it means to really live this stuff out. I'm so inspired by some of the stories that I'm hearing. I'm inspired by the coffee guys outside. who just opened a little uh, version of that within a barber shop in Serverton. Why? Just to get in there and flavor it for good. To be a blessing to the guy that owns the shop. See what conversations, see what happens. Salt and light within the influence they have. More stories like that coming through. Really exciting. We're going to respond straight away by singing. The prayer team, I'd love you to come out to my left right now. It'd be great. The reason I'm doing that right now is because I love us to think about responding and coming forward and saying, you know what, can you pray for me? Real simple, can you pray for me that I might be salty where I am? Can you pray for me that I might be a light where I am? Can you pray for me that I might have a new sphere of influence in the borough? Can you pray for me, perhaps, that the sphere of influence that I do have, God, you would, I'm telling you, he will answer those prayers. So we've got like nine minutes. Let's not muck around here. Yeah? So we're going to stand and sing. As soon as we do, come and respond. Come and get prayer and be commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be salt and light where you are. If you're not on the prayer team, you can already come down and start getting prayer. Let me pray. We'll worship and we'll respond. We'll receive prayer and we'll go from there. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the true and better better Joseph. 
the ultimate Joseph, one who was not flung into prison but to his death, one who was not raised simply from a prison but was raised from death to life and has ascended in glory and majesty and has commissioned the likes of us to be empowered by his spirit, to be salt and light in whatever degree of influence you want to give us.